Welcome to 12 Week in Health Law, the draining the swamp podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 16th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who is as elastic as pharmaceutical prices. Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law at Baltimore, Maryland. And always a quick uh, exhortation that if you... Uh, if you're in the mood and feeling generous, uh, go to uh, iTunes and rate the show. If you're feeling really generous, go to twill.com and buy a T-shirt. Anyway, this week, Frank, uh, we welcome back a Twill fan favorite. Uh, Wendy Palmette is the Matthews Distinguished University Professor of Law, the Director of the Center for Health Policy and Law, and Associate Dean for Interdisciplinary Education and Research Support, and Professor of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs. In 2016, Professor Palmette was honored with the J. Healy Health Law Teachers Award by the American Society of Law, Medicine, and Ethics, and a good thing too. She's published articles on public health, bioethics, discrimination, health law, AIDS law. She's the co-author of uh, several uh, excellent books and a brand new book on immigration and healthcare policy that we'll be discussing today. Uh, she is, in short, one of the great figures in contemporary health law and public health law and policy. And it's super to have you back on the pod, Wendy. Thank you so much. It's really great to be with you again. So to the new book, uh, co-authored with uh, your colleague at Northeastern, uh, Patricia uh, Illingworth, The Health of Newcomers, uh, Immigration Health Policy and the case for global solidarity. It's a New York University Press uh, 2017 in print, and we'll make sure there's a link so all the elite readers can go buy it. Now, not surprisingly, the very opening words of the book, Wendy, resonated with me. Quote, over 200 million of us are newcomers, travelers and migrants living outside our nation of birth. More broadly, you take us through the introduction with comments such as, uh, we seek not only to demonstrate why it's rational and moral for nations to treat the health interests of natives and newcomers alike, like, but also to dispel myths about newcomers that have undermined the willingness of natives to promote the health interests of newcomers as they would those of family and compatriots. Wonderful words. Can we start with the book's sort of core thesis and then talk about some of the moving parts? One of the things that helped us to come to this topic, and let me start there, was the recognition over the years how issues issues related to immigration, how fear of immigrants, and some of these myths about immigrants and their health, the myth that immigrants cause disease, that they carry diseases, that they bankrupt healthcare systems. These myths and the policies that um, these myths lead to seem to keep coming up in health policy, and I began to realize that they really undermine health policy, that some of the irrationality and the inefficiency and the complexity that we see in our healthcare system in the United States and actually around the globe relates to and follows from this intersection uh, between immigration and health and these mistaken understandings about the relationship of healthcare systems to immigrants. So these are the topics that the book explores. We spend a lot of time exploring these issues, looking at how different nations relate to and how their policies affect immigrants around the globe. And then we 
try to build an argument as to why these policies are misguided and what a more rational, effective, and morally grounded approach would be. And I may actually just jump towards the end of the book to pick up on one of those points, Wendy, in terms of how we get from a political environment that seems increasingly hostile to solidarity, to the idea of carrying costs of others. And I noted that towards the end of the book, you mentioned the work of Martha Nussbaum in terms of educating citizens toward cosmopolitanism. And I'm wondering if you have a sense that you're seeing initiatives now in primary education, secondary, tertiary, and are there other methods of sort of convincing people to take on a more, I think, public-spirited, cosmopolitan approach to some of these issues? I think that's a great question. And I think there's no doubt that we are in an uncertain time with respect to these issues. I should say that uh, the book went to press before the election. And certainly after the election, it's hard to some days to be very optimistic about seeing in any time in the near term, the kind of solidarity and cosmopolitanism that we are talking about, never mind the kind of health policy that we are talking about. But on the other hand, I do see glimmers and uh, a cause for optimism. I thought about that a lot. Um, um, back in February, I think it was February, right? Um, right after President Trump's first travel ban came out. And, you know, not only was there a national really uproar and out, uprising um, in protest of that travel ban with lawyers going to airports and people rallying around the country, but was very interesting. And I was at the rally here in Boston was how many healthcare workers were there holding signs about, you know, doctors for our patients, nurses for patients, doctors and nurses who were immigrants. And part of what we talk about in this book is how our healthcare system really is so cosmopolitan, so diverse, so interdependent and how we are all interdependent when it comes to health. If you go to any hospital um, around the land, you're going to have many healthcare professionals from, you know, the chief of surgery to the orderly who are um, immigrants. You're going to have patients who are immigrants. We have a complicated and very diverse healthcare system. And part of what we talk about in that book is how the recognition of that and these moments, these sometimes small moments of of intimacy and interdependence, recognizing that the personal aid worker who's taking care of, you know, our mother, our father, ourselves, our immigrants, beginning to understand that we trust our health, our life to people um, from different countries as they trust their lives on us, I think has the potential of creating openings and we talk about this in the book, sort of the potential for sort of an initial solidarity that can become broader and more um, ensconced in our law. And to some ways, I think that's what we saw after the travel ban, how people, patients, doctors, workers 
took their own experiences, their own intimacies, and own what we call tier one solidarities, and began to realize how that needs to be reflected in broader public policies. You talk in the book how these are moral duties, not merely instrumental concerns. Can you talk a little bit about how those weave together and and give some examples of both? Well, I think they're very much woven together. Um, Instrumentally, pragmatically, we try to show how policies that discriminate against immigrants, policies that vilify immigrants and mistakenly blame them, for scapegoat them for disease outbreaks and healthcare problems and healthcare costs, really undermine our healthcare systems. Again, they cause inefficiencies, they cause absurd complexities. They also distract and divert us from more effective public health policies, whether we're talking about infectious disease responses or chronic disease problems. So there are these more, these pragmatic issues and these pragmatic issues and the inefficiencies arise because of the interdependency of health. But that also points to, and what we talk about the public goods nature of health, but that also points to issues about reciprocity and justice justice and solidarity. We really had to understand that um, we, and I'm, you can't, I guess you can't see the scare quotes on the podcast, but you know, everyone's health is in various ways interdependent on the actions and health of others. And that is not true only in the sense that, you know, others cost us, others also provide us with benefits. And there's a sense of, um, that gives rise to issues of reciprocity and fairness. One of the things we do in the book is, for example, talk about um, the ways in which wealthy countries have benefited from the labor, economies, and even health statuses and health expertise of countries and people in countries which heavily migrate into our own country, both from the brain drain and the fact that so many of our healthcare workers are immigrants to using other countries for medical tourism and things. And these create duties of reciprocity that I think are very real and morally grounded. We also argue that solidarity itself can have a moral component as we connect with other people and recognize our common humanity and we develop norms and understandings that have, in essence, moral force to them. So I very much think that the arguments here are both instrumental and moral, and probably more so than legal in the sense that although we review and talk about and critique the laws, and there are certainly arguments that can be made, and we do make under international human rights law, most of the arguments are not legal in the positive sense of the term. Going through the book and thinking about all of the examples that uh, you and Illingworth give with respect to the interconnections of the economy and of moral obligations. One thing I'm reminded of is, you know, oftentimes people think of the legal academy as something that just imports ideas from other disciplines, like tries to apply law and economics, law and psychology, etc. And one of the things that I think is the, one of the signal accomplishments of this work is that I could see your the perspectives you develop in the health of newcomers and the empirical research you aggregate 
as something that really ought to influence philosophical debate about um, global justice. And I know that you you would do some of those philosophical debates in the book, um, but I just wanted to make a special note of that when you mentioned the point about um, not being entirely restricted to positive legal arguments or positivist legal arguments, because I think one of the things, when, when you put the overall picture together, I know there are some people who write about immigration, some people who write about you know labor force issues in health care, who look at the trade implications, etc. But when you put it all together in the picture that you've developed holistically in this book, it really forces those who have, say, a more communitarian, nationalist perspective to reconsider the coherence of that in light of just how interconnected we are by the global economy and by the types of labor flows that you describe. Well, I have to give a lot of the credit here to my co-author, Patricia Illingworth, who is in the Department of Philosophy and Religion, is also a lawyer. Um, And, you know, I've learned so much from her about how some of these issues look from a more philosophical perspective. And it really, working with her really taught me so much about the literature and the perspective of how someone who really engages their scholarly career on moral argumentation much more than legal argumentation thinks about this. And I think it's it's really helpful. And it's interesting to me, too, to think about the moral argument once we go transnational and comparative, because um, it really, I think, works well, as you said, with a global perspective from, you know, it's hard to make lots of legal arguments. I mean, we can, again, we can and do make international legal law arguments. But for many of these issues, if we want to understand what's going on in different countries and make sense of it, a moral argument is, um, I think, much stronger than a positivist legal legal argument focused on domestic law. Yes, it helps us to understand what it means to be, say, in a country as rich as the United States. Because I think what also is particularly mind-opening about this book is, especially when we taught the chapter about um, medical tourism and then the other material in the book about sort of the conditions of healthcare workers outside of the U.S., particularly in lesser developed countries. You know, so much of the American political debate has been about, say, the stagnation of wages of uh, the middle class and lower class, uh, lower socioeconomic status individuals. And it's important to address those political concerns, and yet we simultaneously have to be aware that we're living in a world where if your income is above, say, $36,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of global income earners, I believe. And uh, to just sort of to, to put together those two points of view, the perspective of both the middle and uh, working class and even sub-working class type of living standards now in the U.S. and other developed countries, and the extreme deprivation that the global economy has sort of wrought with respect to a lot of those in the less developed world, that is such a hard thing to do. And I think that's one of the things that the book does very well, is trying to bring these two perspectives together toward a humane synthesis that says, you know, in the end, what really is, what we have to realize is that this is a positive-sum game. We're not in a zero-sum game, we're in a positive-sum game, and part of that positive-sum game is trying to ensure that everyone who's in our community is best suited and able to contribute to that community. And part of that is not having to worry desperately about uh, health care. 
Absolutely. And, and that's why it's so important to emphasize that health really is a public good. Um, we are all um, benefited and better off when people from around the world are healthier. Right. I mean, that's the short and quick and non-complicated way of saying it. And we talk in the book about the Ebola epidemic, and that was a you know very clear example of how epidemics left unchecked um, in sub-Saharan Africa presented a threat, although not really as much of a threat as many people feared, to people in the West. But we can talk about it in many other ways and many other less stark examples. So I think you're absolutely right, Frank. It's really important to recognize that this is not a zero-sum game. Um, we Health is a positive human good, and the health of some populations health aids the health of other populations. From talking about the policy politics surrounding our failure to provide healthcare to newcomers. Can I sort of flip that in its head a little bit um, and ask you, do you think that the provision or proposed provision of healthcare to undocumented populations has been used as a wedge to argue against healthcare universality uh, in much the same way maybe we saw the provision or proposed, proposed provision of certain types of healthcare to women, uh, the Hobby Lobby uh, issues and so on, uh, has been used as a wedge to argue against universality? And and maybe even Medicaid expansion in the South. Does any of that resonate? I think it's undeniable that the provision of health care to immigrants, undocumented immigrants in particular, but immigrants more broadly, and then minority groups even more broadly than that, has absolutely been used to a wedge. And you know, we can recall the debates in 2009. Early in the book, we talk about the infamous incident where. Um, um, Representative Joe Wilson from South Carolina yelled, uh, you know, screamed out at President Obama during the joint session of Congress yelling, you lie. Well, what yeah, that you yeah. lie was about was supposedly his promise that undocumented immigrants wouldn't be covered by the ACA. And a lot, not it's not the only issue, but one of the more powerful issues that was used to um organize and rally the Tea Party in the summer of 2009 through you know, the w winter of 2010 was this um, fear that, you know, their tax money was going to support undocumented immigrants. So I think it absolutely has been a wedge issue in the United States. I want to go further. I want to suggest that this is a global problem. Um, there was a lot of anti-immigrant bashing it leading up to the Brexit vote, the fear that yep. immigrants yep. were going to bankrupt the National Health Service was certainly um, played a large role in that debate. So this has often been a wedged issue. And that's one of the things that brought us into this book that brought me into this book was trying to understand, you know, what's going on here. And, you know, how is immigration and fear of immigrants and again, these misimpressions of immigrants 
immigrants? Is it actually undermining um, universality? And um, as a as a whole, is the country worse off in terms of its healthcare system because of these wedge issues? And I think the evidence is undeniable. I don't think there's any one study that gives a you know absolute quantification of it. Um, although some political scientists have you know studied this in micro level, but I think that immigration is used as a wedge issue, as race has been used as a wedge issue, and you get to the Medicaid expansion. I mean, that has, you know, that's not only about immigration, it's it's also about racial minorities. But these wedge issues, these otherings of different groups and scapegoating really, in a sense, leads the American healthcare system as a whole in a much worse place. The book ends with a case study involving Ebola. Could you sort of tie things together a little bit uh, for us uh, about what what how that informed the rest of the book and 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 the results of that case study well i think the case study shows again the pitfalls and promises and the complexities on the one hand as i mentioned a few minutes ago the ebola epidemic and in africa and west africa showed in 2012 showed the interdependency and the global interdependency of health we came to recognize as we should have recognized long before um, that diseases that start one in one place can cause illness elsewhere that not addressing diseases and not caring for um, people less wealthy countries can cost us a lot more money in the long run the case study also showed the scapegoating you know there was really terrible scapegoating going on and how it was used as a political issue um, Ebola was quite a prominent issue in the 2012 congressional elections um, travel bans all kinds of things were proposed uh, keeping out people from West Africa as if it, and some people even keeping out everybody from Africa as though keeping out them kept would keep us safe. So Ebola showed that side of the coin, but it also showed the capacity for solidarity. There was, in fact, a tremendous um, rallying around West Africa by not only by NGOs and heroic healthcare workers that put them their own health at risk in under very difficult circumstances, but also um, eventually nation states, right? So the United States actually provided a lot of support, some of it probably a little too late and not as efficiently and well-directed as it woulda, coulda, shoulda been, but we did did ultimately come to recognize at a national level, and certainly the um, public health officials recognized the interdependence, the pragmatic, if not the moral reasons for helping others. And we did see some development of solidarity. So I think the case study shows both the dangers, but also, you know, out of tragedy sometimes comes some roots for optimism. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate the uh, the message in the book. Um, very important piece of work. So if I can just shift gears a little bit, um, it, it wouldn't be Wendy on the pod if I didn't ask you about the Walsh-Lager against Governor State of Florida case. I think
think it's been a topic every time you've been on a podcast episode. And uh, the 11th Circuit, uh, as you uh, and some colleagues recently uh, discussed in an April New England Journal of Medicine piece, has now ruled on that case. Uh, is it over, Wendy? Can I stop asking you about it? Well, you know, I'm going to try to get uh, Netflix to do an original series, you think? We could do one, you know, the, <laughs> the series of the curious case of uh, Glocks versus Docks in the 11th Circuit. Um, I think the Wolschlager case is probably over. The 11th Circuit's en banc decision was, you know, quite emphatic. Uh, only one justice dissenting, the justice, the judge, excuse me, the judge who wrote the majority opinion in the three prior panels. So I think this particular fascinating, odd, unusual, and as I said, you know, worthy of television serialization case is probably over. The broader questions about physicians and their roles with respect to gun violence and counseling patients, and then what I think is even, you know, the bigger conceptual question, the regulation of physician speech by state legislatures, these, mm -hmm. I think, are very much still with us. Yes, I think this question of professional speech is going to get more and more attention and there's even an antitrust angle that may even come into it, given the North Carolina dental decision in terms of requiring active state supervision of boards, although I guess this might be too active state supervision. <laughs> so these questions of licensure and uh, First Amendment and professional speech are just going to keep coming, I think. I actually wanted to take the prerogative to shift the conversation a bit as well um, to a public health topic very recently in the news, which is um, health. HHS Secretary Price recently made the comment about um, medication-assisted therapy, quote, if we're just substituting one op opioid for another, we're not moving the dial. Folks need to be cured so that they can be productive members of society, and, end quote. And um, it was a rather disturbing thing for me to hear, given that I recently was at a meeting of the Behavioral Health Law Institute here in, uh, in Maryland, or at a, a celebration, actually, of the Institute and fundraiser, um, where we heard a lot of tributes to medication-assisted therapy, and of course, Twitter has been full of such tributes, including from the former uh, Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. So I was wondering, Wendy, if you might be able to discuss, um, you know, what's what's up with this? I mean, does it seem as though, I guess the first level question is, you know, it, uh, is, are there real doubts about medication-assisted therapy? And I guess the second level question asking as an admin law professor is, is this one of those areas of admin law where we may well see the wholesale trumping of scientific consensus by uh, a political viewpoint uh, in the Trump administration? I'm going to show my age here, but I can't help but think about the fights during the AIDS epidemic about needle exchange, right? Oh, yeah, and yeah. very, we're seeing some very similar reactions, unfortunately. And we know how awful that epidemic was and how many, you know, need, people needlessly died because evidence-based 
interventions were delayed um, because of people who really didn't want to follow the evidence and politics and um, people who insisted upon a more punitive approach rather than a public health approach. So I'm very worried. I'm, I'm, I'm worried about this. I'm worried more broadly about the opioid epidemic and the new administrations, so, you know, comes some of the things coming out of uh, the attorney general that really makes you think, again, Deja, you know, back to the future and here we go and we're going to do a war on drugs and lock people up as if that is the solution, not to mention what would happen if the American Health Care Act or something similar comes along and dramatically cuts access to insurance for mental health and substance abuse. So, you know, if you put the whole package together, it's really disturbing and it suggests that we as a country are not good at learning lessons and and going forward. With respect to medication-assisted therapy, you know, I don't have, I've looked into this somewhat, I can't claim to know all the science. I think there's a lot of reason to think that this is promising. I don't know that we have enough science. I don't know it, at least, but I, I suspect the answer is it's not there enough to say this is the way to go and every jurisdiction should go that way and, you know, this is where we should put all of our dollars and all of our energy. But, you know, that's one of the advantages of federalism. That's one of the advantages of doing public health at a local level. We need to see more experiments as we did with needle exchange. We need to see different communities trying different ways because probably part of the answer is going to be it depends how and how it's done, right? What other concomitant services, what are the wraparounds, what are the relationships with law enforcement so that people really trust it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And let's let's do the piloting. Let's do the model programs. Let's get the evidence and let's build some public health policy based on evidence. Unfortunately, you know, it's a broader conversation as you've all and everyone's been talking about in terms of what role does science and evidence play right now in public policy making. I certainly give a shout out to um, the always excellent Stat News um, friend of the show uh, for their reporting on this. And in fact, Kate Sheridan has got a, a new piece this week week on how effective is medication assistant treatment assisted treatment for addiction and and goes through some of the science but i think it it ends in the same sort of place as you took us wendy and that we we still don't have all of the science answers what we do see i think is uh, as you note with the uh, the federal government uh, maybe taking uh, retrograde steps Um, Certainly, I can attest to a shift in what's happening in Indiana Um, just a couple of years ago when we had our first major um, rural opioid uh, outbreak. And uh, there was a a lot of problems with then-Governor Pence uh, before he moved on. Um, And it's it's been remarkable watching how our new governor from the same party just doesn't seem to have so many problems, that there is much more pragmatism and approach to look at both upstream and downstream potential solutions. Well, I think many people have commented on the fact that um, this epidemic is so severe, but also it's hitting 
different demographic groups, some of whom are more politically, which is powerful than groups affected by some other drug epidemics, that, you know, there may be a more sympathetic approach. But again, I'm not, you know, what I'm hearing, what you're hearing out of D.C. right now is is very troubling with respect to the opioid epidemic and really with respect to a wide range of public health matters. There doesn't seem to be um, the same recognition of how public health needs to work and how it has to be based on science that we might wish. I've read several pieces in which uh, folks argue that the opioid crisis is the greatest public health threat that we've seen, certainly in, in recent memory. Do you have a perspective on that? I don't know about the greatest. It's certainly very, very significant. Um, the rates, um, the rise, the rather rapid rise is quite dramatic and certainly far more dramatic than I mentioned. We talked earlier about Ebola and you think about the really amazing amount of political attention that a handful of Ebola cases in the United States received in 2012. This epidemic is quite dramatic. But, you know, where it ranks on the great epidemics of all time, I mean, they are each different and horrible in their own ways. This one is certainly very, very worrisome, and it really is important that we develop some and and actually use some strong evidence-based interventions quickly. Well said. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Pamet for joining us. Great fun having you back on the pod, Wendy. Well, thank you so much. It was really fun. And you can find Professor Pamet at W-E-P-A-R-M-E-T. That's at W-E-P-A-R-M-E-T on Twitter. Uh, we post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank? I am at HealthPI on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legal interesting but healthy week. Bye.